Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we scour our vinyl collections to bring you great songs by unknown artists and unknown songs by great artists. I'm Joe. I'm Ryan, and welcome to the internet's finest place for music. All right. As always, we like to start with a little bit of trivia. I am going first today, and my trivia round is going to be, I again, I have no title. My trivia <laughs> round is going to be basically longest song. So I'm going to give you the name of a song, and I want you to tell me first what album it's from. Okay. And second, is it the longest song on that album? Ooh, there are no, okay. no live albums, no compilations, just a regular studio album. Okay, so I'm have... telling you the the uh, the name of the album the song appears on, and if it is the longest song on that album. Exactly, and one thing just to make this fair, it's the first time we're doing this, see if it works out. All of the longest songs on each of these albums are at least a minute longer than the next longest song. Oh, so that should make it a little bit easier. Yeah, that that's not what I would do for you, but I'll take it. I know. That's fine. I know, I know. Okay. <laughs> All right. Number one, good thoughts, bad thoughts. I don't even know. Good thoughts, bad thoughts. Whew. I don't know if I know the album. Standing on the verge of getting it on. Oh, okay. And do you think now, is it the longest song on there, or do you even remember it? I, I don't remember the name of the song, or I don't remember that song. I would say okay. no, though. There's a lot of long songs on that record. It is the longest song. Oh, there are man. some long songs on there, but this one is 12 minutes and 17 seconds. It's the last song on the album. Oh, man. R- rough start. Okay, let's do it. Okay, number two, Teenage Wildlife. That's television? Marquee Moon? No, it is David Bowie, Scary Monsters. Oh, man. Is it the longest song? I'm going to say no. No, wrong again. It is yes. <laughs> Six minutes and 49 seconds. Okay. Wow, it's not okay, this super is great. long. I'm finally getting you. Okay, the next one, number three. A Man Needs a Maid. That is Neil Young on... Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh... Is it Harvest? It is, yes. And I I think that song's song. pretty short. I'm going to say no. You are correct. The <sighs> longest that song is only is 4 minutes, so it's 4 minutes and 6 seconds. It is a little little long. Uh the last song on the album is called Words and that is 6 minutes and 40 seconds. Okay. All right. Well, okay. I'm on the board. You are. You've got one. All right. Next one. Lady Godiva's Operation. Okay, that is from uh, Velvet Underground's White Light, White Heat, and it is not as long as Sister Ray, so no. Correct. Yep, right. absolutely. Okay. That's only Next like six one, songs. They're all, they're all either two and a half minute or like over ten minutes. Yeah. <laughs> you're on a roll now. All right, Next here one. we go. Jungle Land. Oh. Gosh, is that a Bruce Springsteen song? Yes. It's on uh, Born to Run. Yes. I'm going to say yes, that's the longest song. It is. It's 9 minutes and 34 seconds. Ooh, all right. Okay. I'm, 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 I'm warming up now. Yeah. All right. Paper Thin Hotel. That is on Leonard Cohen's Death of a Lady's Man. 
And that is not as long as true love leaves no traces, I don't think. So I'm going to say no. The answer is correct, but I think True Love Leaves No Traces is about the same length. It's Death of a Ladies Man, the title song that is... Death of a... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's what I meant. Yeah. Okay. Come on up to the house. That's uh, Tom Waits on Mule Variations. I'm going to say no. You're correct. All right. Just get behind the mule at almost seven minutes. Oh, okay. Ooh. All right. Okay, you are killing it now. Okay, Gates of Eden. Gates of Eden is on... Is it bringing it all back home? Yes. Um, I don't... The last song on that is... It's alright, Mom, only bleeding. I would say no. Okay, you're correct. It's All Right Ma is the longest one. All right. By, by quite a bit. More news from nowhere. I have no clue. Okay. Dig Lazarus Dig by Nick Cave, and it is eight minutes long, making it the longest one on the album. Okay, okay. In Every Dream Home, A Heartache. Uh, that is on For Your Pleasure by Roxy Music. And I would say, yeah, that's the longest one. It is not. That song. Oh, is the five boogeyman. And is that the is the boogeyman on that one? Bogus man. Bogus man. Twenty one. Yeah, boogeyman. Oh, man. I think is a Dan Aykroyd movie. <laughs> is it good? Oh, I'm just kidding. Doctor Detroit is what I was uh, going for. There. Okay, okay, uh, okay. And no, 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 it's not. <laughs> and that might even be maybe that's Jerry Lewis. No, Doc, I don't even know. Okay, <laughs> last one. Play in the sunshine. Boy, that sounds Artist like a, one. sounds like a song I should know. I don't know. I'm not going to get it. Okay, it is Prince with sign, uh, from Sign of the Times, and it is not the longest song. The longest song is It's Gonna Be a Beautiful Night at just over nine minutes. That's my quiz. Wow, good quiz. Uh, I thought I was going to do horribly on it, but I, I, I picked it up there at the end, I think. You did really well. I went with some pretty uh, canon material there. I yeah. just wanted to see how, how it would go over the first time. I think when I knew it, I knew it for sure, and when I didn't know it, I, I, it was not even close. <laughs> yep, yep. But overall, you've got more than 50%. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, if I get over 50% in anything in life, I'm pretty happy. So There you go. All right. Uh, it's my turn, and I have an audio quiz, and it is a just a basic, straightforward audio quiz. So I'm going to play five songs, tell me the band and the name of the song if you can, and then there's a theme linking the uh, five songs. And so I will okay. uh, go ahead and play those. And we'll uh, answer them at the end of the show. But here we go. Song one. Song two. Song three. Song four. And 
the last song, song five. All right, that was it. So uh, I will have you, uh, we'll play them again at the end, and I will have uh, have you, Joe, uh, see if you know the songs and see if you can get the theme. I think this is, yeah, for, for me, this is a pretty straightforward one. I feel pretty good about at least the artists for most of them mm-hmm. um, and the songs for, for a few of them too, but not, not necessarily all of them. Okay. okay. Well, we'll nope. see if uh, people out there in podcast land can beat you. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it gives me, it gives me a lot can. of joy, so... Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, but that brings us to the uh, uh, my favorite part of the podcast, Turntable Talk. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. For today's Turntable Talk, I'm going to be going over the history of colored vinyl. Colored vinyl is incredibly popular right now with a lot of limited edition records being put out by labels and bands, especially like for a record store day. But colored vinyl has been around for a long time. I'm going to kind of go through when it started, by what record labels, just kind of get through the basics of how it started, because it has been around a lot longer than I ever thought. If you were to guess, when do you think the first colored vinyl, and it wasn't, technically it's not vinyl, but when was the first (laughs) colored record? That seems like that should be a... a, uh... A hint. I would have guessed, before you gave me that hint, I would have guessed maybe 65. I have an old Japanese record that I think is on uh, on red vinyl, like a clear red vinyl. But based on what mm-hmm. you just told me, I guess it's some has something to do with like seventy eights, yeah. like the shellac or something. It is, yeah. So it was nineteen oh eight. The Thomas Edison Company put oh. out um, <laughs> a just... blue amberall wax cylinders just missed that one these were right after rubber cylinders were created in in europe but uh these cylinders were they were more durable than older ones it was the first time they had done wax cylinders so the edison company had them colored blue so that people when they're shopping could pick out which ones were theirs and which ones were the better ones and then after that, Vocalion, I think it's Vocalion, Vocalion Records, uh, they are generally credited with doing the first colored records, though, as I mentioned, it's not accurate. At the, they started doing this in 1917, so it's still not vinyl. Uh, but the Vocalion records were kind of a reddish-brown, almost like a, like a dark wine. And like the Edisons, they were only made to kind of differentiate themselves or distinguish themselves from other records because even then record buyers were more attracted to things that appeared different or unique in some way and then at this point all of the records made were were shellac and they were all 78 rpm and then around the 1930s columbia started pressing dark blue 78s just to kind of drum up more business because they weren't doing all that well (laughs) and then through the 30s they did. They were pretty much the people pressing colored records. I'm gonna say colored vinyl, even though it's before vinyl for a few of these. Please forgive me. It's just too much of a habit. So, <laughs> colored vinyl mostly went away in the 40s because of rationing for World War II. Uh, but uh-huh. there was one company, one small record label in Seattle, that made multicolored records during that time. Uh, the label was called Morrison Records. They had horrible artists, all unknown, like light jazz vocalists and stuff. So the records are collectible, 
but not because of who's on them. They're only collectible because they are colored. Well, I mean, when you say it's like multicolored, like is each one different colors or is it just they just kind of picked random colors for each release? So they had uh, mostly red, blue, and yellow. Those were the big colors that were being used at the time. So all of the records were unique from each other. So they were different. Each one was unique. So it was so almost like a splatter, but not really. It was they didn't have the splatter as like they do now. They had it was sort of like three sections: yellow, red. Okay, blue, yeah, I can kind of see that. Sections. Yeah, yeah. Now by the late '40s, records themselves started evolving super fast. Uh, colored vinyl started to make a little bit of a comeback. 78s were pressed to vinyl finally. Uh, they are much more durable now and they were so much lighter. RCA, even around then, uh, they pressed a translucent vinyl record. And then it was at that time that Columbia, in the late 40s, created the first 33 and a third record on vinyl. Hmm. And now, one other thing that RCA did is they created the first 7 inch 45 RPM record and they had a patent on it so nobody else could do it. So they were the first ones doing it. And the cool thing about that, what they did is they had, they classified for their artists eight separate genres of music and each genre had its own color. Like classical would be red or country would be green. Uh, it's pretty, pretty interesting oh, that they were doing that. That's really cool, actually. Yeah, yeah. All of their full albums were still black, but just the singles were, were different colors. It only lasted a couple of years because splitting everything up and coloring them all different cost them a lot of money. <laughs> so they went back around 1950. All of their records, their singles, again, other than classical, were black. They left classical red. Hmm. Why, why red? Was it the cheapest or just they what, called that's it what people their knew? Red they kept it because they, they labeled those as uh, the Red Label series. So it was kind of a something that only they had and it was special. Kind of make, classes it up a bit. Yeah, yeah, classes their joints up a bit. <laughs> so in the 1950s, uh, colored vinyl was still pretty uncommon, but more record companies were were pressing them sparingly. Like uh, there, was, there were labels Fantasy and Crown and Liberty. And in 1957, so you get a little bit later, Stereo Records made their first appearance. And there's one label that was called Mayfair Records. They were a subsidiary of a record label named Tops, which I had never even heard of. I hadn't heard of Mayfair, I guess, either, but it sounded familiar. The Mayfair was their stereo subsidiary, so the, all of theirs were in stereo. And they only used color vinyl. Hmm. So it, in addition to the standard black, you know, obviously that color, Tops and Mayfair pressed red and yellow vinyl. So Mayfair would do red and yellow, and once in a while they would do red and yellow on the same record. Most of the time it was all red or it was all yellow. Huh, okay. <laughs> red and yellow is kind of a strange color combination right? if you're going to... Yeah, I don't know Like if you're going to... It seemed like they had blue, they have red, uh, they have yellow for sure, I don't. and then they were able to do all the other colors. They had eight colors from one company. I don't know why they couldn't do more. Liberty Records, they started pressing colored vinyl for some of their records, but one one weird thing about them is they would have, they had no rhyme or reason. They would just color some of the records, and they wouldn't label on the they wouldn't put anything on the label, letting people know that they were colored. So it was just sort of random. So people wouldn't when they were buying, they would have no idea whether the record was on colored vinyl or not until they got home and opened it. Really huh. weird thing. Everybody else up until then would mark on the label like they do now on, yeah. on colored vinyl. Well, I've noticed like a few special releases, they'll be like, 
you know, 500 pressings and 100 are special, you know, color. I don't know if it's just to to drive up the value or make them more collectible or whatever, but it seems like, you know, I guess if you really were one of those collector types that had to have the colored vinyl, you just kind of keep buying them, like uh, baseball cards. Oh, yeah, like Beck's new album has multiple colored vinyl versions, and so there are people going out there and just buying every one of every single color at least. It's just a way to to make more money. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. definitely been times where... I've paid more money for the collectible color vert. I say more times. There's been plenty of times I can think of, and you know, where you pay more money for the collectible color. But it seems like that value continues. At least, you know, when, when I'm when I'm looking at resale value, it seems like the the colored vinyl, like people still want that that rare color vinyl. Yeah, if it doesn't go up in value, which they used to a lot, it's going to at least stay. It, it'll be static. It's not going to go down, I wouldn't think. There was a label out of Ohio around the, and around the same time, 1957 again, kind of a big year. That's when stereo started. And, and there was a label called Bel Canto in Ohio. They started as a record label in 1957, but they were already like making weaponry for the government. Like It's a very strange record label. But <laughs> all of their records uh, were in stereo and on colored vinyl, which is kind of cool, but they only lasted about two years. They're in Ohio, and they didn't have any, like, big, big people on their label. Yeah, more money in government guns, I would figure. Exactly. Yeah, there's got to be, right? <laughs> and then, like you were talking about earlier, you've got, um, I think you said you had a, a Japanese colored vinyl. There was, in the 50s and 60s, Japan started producing colored vinyl for uh, their label, for labels, American labels, like Capital and Odeon and World Pacific. And so big artists like Bob Dylan and uh, lots of like Barbara Streisand and stuff, they would be producing colored vinyl that they called evergreen, though it yes. looks like a dark red to me. Yeah, um, that's I that. I, I'm almost positive that's what I have. I, I went to a Goodwill and I saw this weird Japanese record and um, I pulled it out and it's it's like a dark red, but I remember it saying evergreen. Uh, yeah, that's I, I it. mean, I never knew. I, I never knew about it. I think a lot of the reason I bought it is because the actual liner notes, the liner sleeve had a bunch of crazy Beetle cover. You know how they try to sell other records on the yeah. on the on the sleeve, but it had a bunch of like crazy Japanese. But it turned out to be, uh, gosh, what is his name? I think it's Kaiyu Sakamoto. Sakamoto. I don't. I don't remember his name. But they they played the song on Madman one time. It turns out that's one of the most valuable records in my collection. It's like an original oh, Japanese. Wow. Thing that it, it, that costs hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I got a Goodwill because it had it was red colored and it had Beetle, you know, Japanese Beetles on the sleeve. <laughs> this is lucky. <laughs> so that evergreen label, that's not just a colored vinyl. What they claimed, and and it was it's true, but there's an issue with it. They claimed that uh, they had a special compound that they used in these records, just the evergreen ones, which prevented static electricity from building up. But they sort of lied because they only did it once in a while. So they made a ton of evergreen records, but just randomly they would use this this extra compound on those. But they should, <laughs> they're supposed to, supposedly it works, they just didn't use it as often as they said. Oh, that's nuts. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then in the 60s, we had, um, there were a lot of record companies that were producing colored singles, but only for promotional use, so they would send them to DJs. So DJs were getting tons and tons of records, and what record labels would do is they would send them colored vinyl records because they thought that would stand out, and that's what a DJ would pick. So there were lots of companies doing that, 
Uh, mostly Columbia, though. They were using green, and that by that point, green, blue, red, yellow, purple, orange, just kind of everything throwing at them just to try to get more play by a DJ. And Chess Records from Chicago was doing the same thing. They were doing uh, multicolored singles for promotional use only. So it wasn't too many of them, but it was uh, it was basically, they were designed specifically for DJs. And then in the 70s, they started really making a lot more. Um, in 1971, Faust, their, their debut album was on clear vinyl. I think that was the first clear, may have been the first clear vinyl release. It really started to pick up from there. Lots and lots of people were doing it just like they do now. Limited edition like ELO or Led Zeppelin or Beatles, Elton John. A lot of people were doing it. And in 1978, Kraftwerk, they put out 12-inch single for neon lights that glows in the dark, and I have it. I have a copy of it, so I'll put a I'll put a picture of that up. It's pretty cool. I'm really yeah. got really lucky finding that one. I would I would like to see that. I'll put up uh, the picture of my uh, my evergreen one too. Yeah, I would like to see that. I know I've heard you talk about it before, but I've never seen it. But these records, the records that they were coloring using colored vinyl on in the 70s, they were that they were just colored so that they could sell more and jack up the prices like yeah. they do now. Yep, basically. And then. There's one thing doing this research that I had never heard of before. So in record plants, apparently, and I, I think that this may have been in the 70s, may have been a little bit before that, there were people who would take the, they would make their own copies when no one was looking, like they would make a pressing of a record on colored vinyl just for their own use, or maybe they would resell it. But these are like the rarest things in the world. It's really, really interesting. I'd never heard of this at all. Wow, that's super cool. Like, Isn't is that there, neat? I mean, there, what's an example of like a famous one that was made? Hard Day's Night, there's only one known copy on pink vinyl. Oh my and gosh. Like, the Rolling Stones Let It Bleed is the other one that I was looking at that um, it's multicolored vinyl. There's only one that, that anybody knows about. So, can you, really, I mean, are they like, do people have them still? Can, is there pictures of them or is it just kind of like, legendary I, have, I was not able to find any pictures of them but i think that they should be out there and there are probably a lot more from people who didn't ever sell them so they're probably still in some private collections even if the person who did it isn't still around right I'm right sure that there are a lot still out there and they are worth a ton of money oh i bet and then there were a lot of pirate labels like uh, i have some taiwanese and russian record labels uh for some albums and they're on colored vinyl but they were on colored vinyl just so people would buy them because the quality itself on those records is, is garbage. They are horrible, horrible records because they're just recording from other records. So right. mm -hmm. to try to get them to sell. And then they also had terrible covers. They would be like a picture of the album cover kind of stretched out. Um, <laughs> hey, it's close enough. When I, when I was a kid, I was told that, and maybe you were told the same thing that colored vinyl, not only does it not sound as good, it wears out faster. But I've definitely heard it doesn't sound as good. Not true in any way. If a record doesn't sound good, it has nothing to do with what color vinyl it is. Black records are colored too. It's the same exact process. So th there's nothing about a colored record that would be specifically causing it to not sound good. Because hmm. the P PVC that they make the records from is clear. So they use the same process to make them black as they would to make them any other color. The reason they chose black is because it shows fewer imperfections. Right. And I've noticed when I have when I have colored records, see, I think the opposite when I'm looking at them. I, uh, when I have colored records, I have a really hard time seeing uh, some imperfections, but also I have a hard time, like, finding tracks sometimes. Well, that's, that. I mean, that's crazy. I would have never guessed it had such a long 
history. And it's, it's, it's kind of funny that, it, yeah, 100 years, it's basically the same gimmick that we have now. Exactly. Everybody's been doing it forever to try to dupe consumers. Although, I mean, I think they're a lot of fun. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I still, you know, like I said, I still go for them. So what are some of your favorite uh, colored records? I've got a bunch of Beatles Japanese records that are on red vinyl. I've got the the 62 to 66 they re-released on red, and then they did 67 to 70 on blue. Um, mm-hmm. Those I really like a lot. I might have those backwards, but uh, the red the red album. Yeah, red album. Is, the, yeah, those are really cool. And then I've got some private press ones. Not private. There's a there's a record label out of Europe called Fuzz Club. They do a lot of colored vinyl, so I like have a soda colored vinyl one that's really good. Uh, just and I've got some splatter ones that they've made. They're all generally psych records, and the the records are okay, but they're so much fun to look at. One that I would really like to get is Jack White did one, and like all all gold. I don't know if it's actually really gold or probably not, but it was for it was for the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack, which would be awful to own. But he does a lot of fun things. Anyway. Yeah. And some people like even Phil. You can have your ashes put into records now. You can. Do <laughs> things. Yeah, I've heard about that. I think I've got I've got a couple that I, I really like. I've got uh, the Purple Rain single on purple oh, vinyl. Yeah, yeah. And um, oh, and one I played on a previous show that uh, Cocksucker Blues is on red, but that's red. a pirated one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've got um, uh, Kermit the Frog on green. <laughs> I think it's I think it's Rainbow Connection, but it might it might be it ain't easy being green. I don't I don't okay. remember. It's it's but it's it's a Kermit the Frog single. So I just got the um, so I. I'm a big Luna fan, obviously. I got the Luna box set, the long player. So I had I had a few of their early, like, original pressings, and I sold them and ch- traded them in for the box set because it has all of their records, and I didn't have that. But all of them are on white vinyl, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah. I have a, um, I got, a, I think it was a record store day, and this is not really my, my normal style of music, but I got a, a, you know, a Pugue Destroyer, you know, the baseball hardcore band, and it's... It's like a white vinyl, but they must have put like some red because it's like streaking out red. And then yeah. the sticker is a baseball, so it looks like this baseball hitting white vinyl and like spraying red everywhere. It's, it's real one of my favorite uh, colored oh, vinyls. Wow. I know a lot of like the horror movie soundtracks often have really good ones, like that record label Mondo. I think it is. They yeah, some yeah. Really cool stuff with the colored vinyl. Absolutely. But- if anybody ever claims that colored records are just kind of a trendy new thing, they are not. They've been around forever. So they are not driving up prices. They've been around forever. They're just they're just something that's fun and they're they're great to have around, I think. I don't always get them, but I I like them when I play them. They're fun fun to watch spinning, I guess. Yeah, yeah. That's that's awesome. Uh go buy some colored vinyl. Exactly. Have fun with it. It's great. All right. And that means it is time for Four songs you need to know. All right, I'm going to start today, and uh, this is my uh, unknown song by a great artist, even though that might be debatable, but he's uh, definitely a well-known uh, artist, and he may be more well-known for his movie career than his uh, his records. So I'm going to go ahead and play this. This is Hoyt Axton with a song called On the Natural. Would you like to go? Colorado 
heavens there I'm told In Colorado Well I'm leaving in the morning And I'd like to take you with me I feel that Colorado Is a place we could be happy in The mountains La da 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 Rocky Mountain Everybody talking about the place of their dreams Where they can find peace of mind I'm not sure, but I think it seems I finally found mine In the mountain Rocky Mountains Up on a mountain you don't need your little blue pills And there's a gold city in the city and the crystal morning sunshine is so pretty in the mountains la da 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 rocky mountains la da 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 yeah the hunter hears the quiet tread of the bare left foot of God and the soldier hears the echoes where the sons of swords have trod and where Up on a mountain you don't need to blow no grass And all the tea you need is sassafras On the natural, on the natural souls aglow So I'm going to Crested Butte Bay I've just got to try once more In the mountains Rocky Right, that was On the Natural by uh, Mr. Hoyt Axton. And uh, Hoyt Axton was a uh, folk singer in San Francisco, and in the um, he released a bunch of acoustic albums in the early to mid-60s, and he uh, became more well-known as a songwriter. He wrote uh, Greenback Dollar, which became a pretty big hit for the Kingston Trio. But most people nowadays know him as an actor, and they know him mostly for one very memorable memorable role. 
he was the dad in Gremlins who uh, who bought the Mogwai and gave it to his son and destroyed the city. Uh, but that that is Hoyt Axton. Uh, but um, he was, a, like I said, he was a very good songwriter. And about the end of the 60s, he put out a uh, very, very awesome and unique record called My Griffin Is Gone. Came out on Columbia in 1969. And it had this song, which I just played on The Natural. The whole album is sort of a uh, Baroque psych folk type deal uh, but it's a kind of a reflection on drugs which he he struggled with quite a bit and he saw a lot of his friends uh, uh, struggle with and so it was kind of like uh, a perfect end cap to the 60s where people were kind of realizing that you know drugs have these uh, these other effects besides expanding minds they can also lead people to do pretty bad things to themselves sometimes so it was kind of this this album was whole a uh, whole reflection on searching for some a transformation and and this uh, naivety the griffin he was talked about is gone he did get arrested later in life for having a pound of marijuana so he, he uh, struggled with with drugs uh, for a while, or at least he used drugs for a while. This song is not exactly as um, as dramatic as a lot of other songs on the record. It's it's a little bit more laid back and mellow, and it's one of the first like kind of counterculture songs that would glorify Colorado as um as kind of an escape from this uh, this kind of mecca of peace and and away from the drug culture. And it's it's got a it's got a great uh, beat, and it kind of builds and climbs and has. I mean, he really can 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 sing, and for having kind of a plain folk voice, he really belts out on this song. Light in the Attic, who we talk about a lot, released a uh, compilation album from Tumbleweed Records, which is a record label that was basically, you know, kind of blew up real quick and then went defunct immediately in Denver. And it had a lot of these similar sort of songs kind of glorifying Colorado. Uh, and I love Colorado. I'm from Colorado. You probably figured out if you've listened to it or know me. I think that probably gives gives the song a um, little extra, extra oomph. Uh, but I, it is a very pretty song and it, it's sweet. Robert Christow, who we've talked about many times, uh, and neither of us really like, he's kind of, kind of a jerk. But his his uh, his review on this on on one of his websites or one of, in one of his books was Hoyt Axton, who can't sing, has written two good songs: "The Pusher" and "On the Natural." The latter is on this record. It's produced by Alex Hezeliv, who can't produce, and then he gave it a D plus. So that, that's what Robert Criscow had to say. He, he, he kind of liked the song, and he didn't like anything else. It did not sell well, uh, so Columbia dropped him. And then he ended up writing, right after this, Joy to the World, which became a big hit for Three Dog Night. And the No-No song, which was a hit for Ringo, and basically revitalized his career. But he basically made kind of fun, silly pop songs from then on. Snowblind Friend, that would be a hit for Steppenwolf, was also on this uh, record so yeah he's he, it's 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 a record definitely worth uh, listening to especially if you like the song but i think it's it's just kind of a nice pretty song and kind of makes me miss home so that's my first song good one all right my first song is by a band called chairman of the board and the song is called i'm on my way to a better place and i'll go ahead and play it right now
That was Chairman of the Board again with us with their I'm On My Way to a Better Place. This is from 1972 on their album Bittersweet, and it was on Invictus Records out of Detroit. So the lead singer, General Johnson, I don't have a whole lot of information on this album. I have, obviously, I have a copy. It's not in great shape, as you heard, but it's it's really good. I love that song. So he was the lead singer. His name was General Johnson. <laughs> what, a, what a great name. Isn't it great? It's awesome. I, have n- I think that that's his actual name, too. He is actually more famous 
for, obviously, because this is pretty unknown, he's more famous for writing a song called Peaches, which made Clarence Carter famous. So really, General Johnson is the reason that we all have the song Strokin' in our life. Yeah, and that's the only song you need at karaoke. That's right. It, it is the ultimate karaoke song. It's, it's just a great song to play also when you want to bother people in bars. My next song is Delaney and Bonnie with A Right Now Love. So here's that one. Long have been my days And cold have been my nights Without your loving arms To hold me tight Precious time is wasting Don't you see, don't you see I'm coming on back to you, baby To satisfy me That was Delaney and Bonnie with a song called A Right Now Love. It's from their debut album called Home, which was on Stax Records. Delaney and Bonnie Bramlett, which is really hard for me to say sometimes. Uh, they are um, they are a, a husband and wife, and they started, obviously, separately. But Delaney started out as a member of a house band called, uh, for the show Shindig, which you, some of you may have heard of. There are some great videos online of, of those show and, and the musicians who performed. So he was in, in the house band called the Shindigs. And one of the other guys in the band was Leon Russell. So they became very good friends through that, and they kind of worked together forever after that. Bonnie Bramlett, uh, meanwhile, was actually the first white Iket. So she was with Ike and Tina Turner when she was 19 years old and the very first white Iket uh, ever. <laughs> I don't know if, I don't know how many more were after that. On this album, I love, I really love this, this song. And I like a lot of their stuff. They have a ton of kind of fairly famous people like Eric Clapton and obviously Leon Russell working on a lot of their albums. On this album, there were a bunch of Stax regulars like Booker T. Jones, Isaac Hayes, William Bell. They were all playing instruments or singing on it all over the place. They, um, and it also had, obviously, 
Leon Russell on it. He was basically on all of their albums, and he, he produced a few of them, and most of them were recorded in his home studio. This one wasn't. This was recorded in Memphis, at, I think, at Stax. But ah, I love that song. It's really short. It should be three times as long. I can never get enough of that one. It stays in my head for weeks. Those are my two songs. Very good. Uh, my last song, which is another one that is, is so short, but it's kind of perfect. It, it could be a little bit longer, but I kind of like how short it is. This song is called Oh Those Sweet Bananas, and it's by a band called Hackamore Brick. <laughs> Sweet Bananas, and the band again was Hackamore Brick. Uh, Hackamore Brick is pretty much a cult band, and they're pretty they're pretty much known as the first band that really used the Velvet Underground as an influence. This record came out in 1970, and they were a Brooklyn-based band. And like I said, they're you know even I think on the record I got it said this is the great missing link between the Velvet Underground and post punk or whatever. For a while, there was actually rumored that the band, what Lou Reed was in this band, that he started this band under the moniker uh, Tommy Moonlight, which is the name of of one of the is the name of the singer in the band. And that that rumor had some credence because uh, the guy who produced this this album, the album's called One Kiss Leads to Another. It's on Kama Sutra Records. Uh, his name was Richard Robertson, and he went on to to uh, produce Lou Reed's debut debut solo album, the the one with the egg on it. So, 
I think the rumor got floated around in Cream Magazine. And he sounds, a, he does sound a little bit like Lou Reed. He's kind of got the deadpan lyrics. He sounds a lot like Jonathan Richmond to me, too, uh, who, who was another guy who was definitely VU influenced. It's just kind of a fun, catchy song. My favorite part about it is uh, how he mostly unsuccessfully tries to rhyme apples and vegetables. Uh, so you may need to go back and try to listen to that again, but it's so bad, but it's so perfect for the song. And it's just a, a fun, silly song. Has anybody either proved that he was or proved that he was not in the band? People have maintained it at VU Appreciation Societies all the way up into the 90s. There's plenty of interviews with the band, and they always downplay the Velvet Underground influence. I've seen interviews where they say they never heard them. I've seen interviews where they said, well, we had the one with the banana on it. I don't know how like uh, some hip guys in Brooklyn who are interested in starting an underground band hadn't heard the Velvet Underground at that point, especially the way this record sounds. Because, you know, VU's... So innovative right then. And this sounds, it's sort of like a mix between the third record and, and, and Loaded as far as the sound. The whole record, One Kiss Leads to Another, is really good and definitely worth checking out. It just got re-released. Uh, it was originally on Kama Sutra Records, but it's um, it just got re-released recently. So it's uh, definitely worth checking out and picking up. But uh, yeah. Is it, better than, is it better than the Velvet Underground Squeeze? It's way better than Squeeze. Okay. okay. Which is so strange. All right, I think it's time to answer some trivia. So I'm going to go ahead and play uh, my five songs once more, and then we will let you guess and see if you can get the theme. All right, here we go. Song number one. Song number two. Song number three. Song number four. All right, Joe, what you got for me? Okay. Track one, I think, is Question Mark and the Mysterians, but I do not know the song at all. You are correct. It is Question Mark and the Mysterians. The song is Can't Get Enough of You, Baby, which is more well-known because that horrible band recorded it and they probably used it on shrek what band <sighs> like sugar ray or something? no it's like sugar ray it's not smash mouth <laughs> smash mouth that's who i was thinking of i can't tell them apart i mean i can't tell their names apart i guess but... yeah but question mark and yeah. mysterians are way better than smash mouth seems like smash mouth was a band that was created just for soundtracks yeah yeah and i'm sure they they're laughing all the way to the bank with it yeah. so okay very good song number two what'd you got R.E.M. with Strange, which is, I think, a pylon cover. It is a pylon cover, yes. Good song. All right, good. Track three, Songs Ohio with Hello Darlin', which is also a cover. Yes. Um, It's not Boxcar Willie. It's, um, shoot. I I think it's Conway Twitty is the the version I know. Okay. Yep. Song number four. It's ACDC with Big Balls. It is. 
It is. Mm-hmm. Um, a song that you uh, have probably heard on uh, classic rock radio, if you listen to that. You should stop yeah. listening to that and listen to our podcast more if you are. But uh, anyways, yes. you're correct. ACDC Big Balls. And track number five, I don't know at all. It doesn't sound it doesn't sound like anything I've ever heard. Okay. Uh, track number five is a band called Chick Chick Chick. And the song Ooh, is okay. Me and Giuliani Down by the Schoolyard, A True Story. Uh, Chick Chick okay. Chick. I've seen them live. They're a lot of fun. They're kind of like a indie dance band. My guess would be with the theme, based on you uh, clearing up who that last person is, is that there are special characters used in all of the titles, like a question mark, periods, colon, um, a backslash. Yep. And then an exclamation point. Very good. You've got it. Hey. Hashtag Ooh. correct. Yeah, <laughs> I never get your and you never get yours right. Oh, I've been well then the next two shows I made are are gonna be super, super easy for you. Cause you gave me last time we hung out, we did a bunch did a bunch of, of uh shows together and all I heard about was how hard my trivia was. Anyways, good, good job. job. Uh, just kind of a, uh, all fun songs. I did th- the first three R covers. I was kind of hoping to uh, push a little bit of a red herring then there, but you uh, you broke broke through with big balls, I guess. So okay, well that is <laughs> that's our show today. Awkward I transition. All right. Yeah. Thank uh, you for the balls transition. Yeah. Yeah. You know that's that's what I'm good way for. To, way to fumble the big balls. <laughs> All right. As always, uh, please uh, support people who who make and bring you music that you love. Go to go to record stores, buy buy albums, go to shows, do all those cool things. Please check out our social media if you haven't. We're pretty active on Facebook. We're going to be posting things every other day or so. Lots of different stuff or stuff we wish we could get on the show. We're going to be having different uh, Spotify playlists, and uh, we really want to get to a point where we have more um, of our audience participating and maybe sending us trivia or sending us quizzes and stuff like that. So hopefully we'll be doing that soon, but mostly we appreciate you listening, and we'd be doing this anyways. We love it, but it's even more fun to know if people are kind of coming along with us. And also for for those of you, for both of you who have been listening to a lot of our shows, you're going to see that we we posted quite a few shows at the beginning, and now we're kind of doing, uh, or then for a little while, we were doing one a week. Our our plan from the beginning was to do one every other week, and that's where we should be by the point of you hearing this episode, I believe. That's, That's our goal is one every two weeks, so don't think we're slowing down. Because we were doing like three a day and then one a week and then one every other week. We're, that's that's the plan. That's where we'll stick. So you can count on us to upload a new show every Thursday at 5 o'clock Central. Yeah. And uh, again, we appreciate both of you listening or all of you listening. And uh, shoot us an email or uh, uh, hit us up on Facebook or whatever. Just let us know what you think or what you'd like to see or some songs we're missing. But uh, I hope you're enjoying it. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 